Almost two years into the pandemic, it's probably fair to say science has never been so easy to access online and so often called into question. From government press conferences and lab leak theories to lockdown measures and anti-vax rallies, it seems everyone has an opinion, but not everyone has the same facts. That's where content creators like Samantha Yamin come in. Armed with a PhD in neuroscience, Sam reaches millions online to dispel myths and educate her followers in real time. She's part of a new class of science communicators, a niche group of health experts who are rethinking what science education looks like, and in doing so, how we all make sense of our lives. Welcome to Let's Talk About the Internet, a conversation about the future of the internet in Canada. This podcast is part of a partnership between Meta and The Walrus. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Dr. Samantha Yamin joins us to talk about how she uses social media to make science more accessible and what it's like being a go-to source for the public during the pandemic. Back in October, she discussed these topics at The Walrus Talks at Home, CanCon Online. I'll be talking to Samantha more about this, but first, let's have a listen to that talk. I'm Samantha Amin. I'm a neuroscientist by training and a science creator across social media platforms. For reference, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok as at science.sam or hey science sam uh, to find me on Twitter and Facebook. I want to share with you today some of the things that I didn't really think about when I started off as a creator. And I hope that that can help frame a larger discussion for us about how we view and value creators. First, I want to say it's a pretty unconventional career path to go from doing a PhD, studying brain cells under a microscope to being a content creator, but it's one I truly fell into. I started using Instagram about five years ago because I wanted to break down barriers to accessing science and bring it to where people already were, which of course was on social media. I'm the only scientist in my family and really in my close friend group, and I wanted them to see what I was uh, working so hard doing in the lab and help them see all of the things that went into making something a scientific fact. At the time, there were some, but not many people with my specific background as a wet lab researcher using the platform in this way to, to be really a portal into the scientific uh, process. So while I started it for fun, it ended up being really amazing to see what a cool gap I could fill and see how excited people got, what an impact I could have, particularly in dispelling myths in real time as they were proliferating on the platform. To put science in the exact same newsfeed where the myth and misinformation was, was really exciting. And now, as you can probably imagine, the appetite for this has only grown over the course of the pandemic. And while I originally, uh, my content was very much about light, evergreen science, in January 2020, I started what was supposed to be a one-week series about the new coronavirus, and I think we can all agree it's been the longest week ever, um, but the reason I haven't gone back to what I used to do is because there's still a huge need, there are still lots of people very interested, and to be able to connect with people in that way is really important. So while there's lots of criticisms to give to social media, and I'm sure we'll get into some of them, um, I cannot understate how rewarding it can be to be able to connect with people in this way to build relationships with people you otherwise wouldn't ever be able to meet. In my case, to be a scientist for someone who otherwise doesn't know a living scientist directly. Being able to help thousands of people connect with evidence to get a life-saving vaccine during a pandemic, that's more than I'd ever hoped of being able to ask of my career. And that's really why I do what I do. 
But I think as we continue to demonstrate the impact of our work as creators, it's important we acknowledge the huge gaps in how it's valued. Contrary to popular belief, a blue check on social media does not mean you get paid by the platform to create content. While all the platforms are making incremental steps to try to move towards direct creator compensation, content creation is a full-time job, but it doesn't automatically pay like one. So we got to get creative again on how we get paid. For me, it's a lot of consulting work that just adds to my workload and burnout is a real issue. So it puts a major constraint on what we can do and what we can create on the platform. And there's always this tension between, ah, I got to put out content, but also I need to pay rent and all this stuff. The way some creators focus their work so they can get paid while prioritizing content creation is through brand, par brand partnerships where you post about specific products um, and you get paid to do that. And when done well, they can be really great. And a lot of people are very successful doing that. But for a lot of us, definitely me as a scientist, many activists, for example, this doesn't really work out. There's a tension and, and there's a trust with our audience and they don't want to see us doing certain partnerships. And so you're very, very limited. Um, and that doesn't always work out. That's not something I've done a few, but not very many. Um, and often in my niche, since it's a very unique kind of niche, I'm the first creator a brand has worked with. And there's just so much that goes into making that partnership happen partnership happen, it's not entirely sustainable. And I'm not sure how sustainable it is for other creators. A common alternative to the relying on brand sponsorships is creating some exclusive content with um, via creator community like Patreon. I think those can be great. But again, what about creators like me, where our mission is to make science accessible or to make some sort of educational thing accessible, putting it behind a paywall doesn't really jive with that mission. And so that's not something I've been able to, to really tap into yet either. So we're left with uh, merch, really, which I guess I hope to be able to do soon, but I don't know when and also why. Why is having to create merch, which is like not at all what I'm an expert in, what I have to do to support what I love to do and what I know is valuable. So don't get me wrong. I know we have to figure out a business model that works if we want to be entrepreneurs, but creators have established demand and generated value, and we just don't have the ecosystem behind us that's keeping up. With every big event, like when activists step up and create huge grassroots movements, or literally we're in a pandemic and my peers and I have stepped up as science communicators, I keep thinking the tide will turn and we'll finally find a way to support what we do, but we haven't yet. And I think that's very telling. And it's definitely sent a kind of sad signal to me as a science communicator and a creator um, that even in this time when I've been able to reach millions of people a month, connecting them with important information, I still haven't been able to get any kind of grant or any like sustainable support beyond all of my side hustles. So this is true also for many other creators uh, in Canada, creating content in other spaces from arts and culture, food, entertainment, fashion. We've brought many forms of value through education, entertainment, whatever category. And my question is, what's next? How do we keep it up? I'm excited to chat with others in this space on solutions to figure out who can change things finally and how so that Canadian creators that bring enormous value in unique and important ways can start to actually be valued. Thank you. That's Samantha Yamin speaking at the Walrus Talks at Home, CanCon Online. She joins me now to talk more about science communication on social media. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Hey, Mohit. Thanks so much for having me. Of all the people I see online, you've clearly had a unique experience during this pandemic. It's interesting because you've found 
uh, a void and you're essentially filling it. There's so many ways that you're probably inspiring a whole new generation of communicators. Many people have said that large institutions, including traditional media and government authorities, have at times failed to properly educate people on matters related to science. What gaps do you see and how have content creators like yourself responded to them? The first rule of communication is know your audience. That's for any type of communication. The challenge is that public health authorities and the people higher up, they are communicating to everyone. So I will say they have a serious challenge because they have to reach really broadly, but that's also where a lot of the failure comes in because in trying to reach everyone, there's often a lack of nuance, which is really needed. There are a lot of generalizations, really broad sweeping statements that are now, frankly, cliche and not that helpful. And so I I appreciate the challenge they have, but I also think they definitely have missed opportunities to do better. People are more interested in science. Things that were once jargon like mRNA and epidemiology are now household terms that we discuss in our regular conversations. And I think there's been a pretty big missed opportunity that it's not too late to leverage to approach people's curiosity with the level of detail it deserves and that it needs. I'm wondering what you think traditional institutions and outlets need to do or how, or how they can learn from content creators like yourself? What I love a lot about social media, there are a lot of critiques that we can and should give, but the biggest advantage is that it's a multi-way conversation. It's between the creator and their audience and then between the audience members. Um, so you can really have a back and forth in a really rich, high throughput way. As creators, I think we're really good at having intimate, personal conversations at connecting with people and doing that in a really scalable way. And I think a lot of legacy media is traditionally one way. It's what we call a a sage on the stage, someone talking at you. That's been a lot of what we've seen with even news conferences. And I think whether it's through social media or through traditional media platforms, finding ways and, and learning how to engage and make it more of a conversation instead of one-way communication would really help. Because at this point, people have really legitimate and deep concerns. People have a lot of unique experiences and people want to be heard. That's the big way to make movements right now with where we're at. It's interesting because what I've noticed is that uh, with so much pandemic-related content and news produced every day, it's a little bit tough to decipher what's news and what to respond to. For somebody like yourself, how do you choose who to respond to and what information to amplify or dispute? In the early days of the pandemic, I, I was trying to give regular updates. That became really difficult to keep up with, especially as the situation became so varied from place to place around the world and even within a given country. That's a little too ambitious. I'm a one-person show. Uh, I can't keep up with daily news and every new paper that comes out on this topic. The volume's way too high. And I also don't think that's productive. So for me, my role is to cover the really big picture concepts and to give a more in-depth understanding that will relate to the day-to-day and to the daily news. For example, before the holidays, I did a pretty in-depth video explainer on rapid tests just so people could understand how they work and then adapt them for how they should be used depending on their situation, giving that fundamental understanding rather than covering what every single news station was saying about rapid tests, giving that bigger picture perspective. 
And when it comes to disinformation and misinformation, it's hard to keep up with all of it. But when I've had enough people reaching out about a particular thing that they've heard or a claim that's being passed around, I don't have a magic number, but if I'm getting a lot of the same message or the same question, then for me, that's enough to address it at least quickly in an Instagram story or a tweet uh, or more in depth if needed. Where are we in the state of misinformation right now? Do you feel like we're worse than we were? Are we better now? Disinformation and this infodemic we're in, this avalanche of information that's hard to keep up with and to navigate, it's par for the course with a public health crisis. It's always happened even before there was social media. I think the stage we're at now, though, is that Things are really easily scaled and really easily polarized. I think there are a lot of gut reactions because things happen so quickly. And with that speed, people respond quickly and it draws people to further ends on a certain spectrum of beliefs or ideology. And I don't know, you know, numerically, quantitatively, if things are worse, but I can tell you things certainly feel really dire and and really polarized and it's really hard to have a nuanced conversation it's possible and i think we need to keep trying it but we also need to realize people are getting pushed to those polar ends for reasons and it's time we really focus on bridging tactics like why is someone being polarized we don't need to just throw facts at them and throw graphs at them and data and 10 citations they're going to throw all the same back at you. That's not going to be a productive conversation. What needs to happen now is we address the reasons why people go down those disinformation rabbit holes and realize there are like real needs that people have that aren't being met. And how can we be the bridge? How can we extend an olive branch? How can we acknowledge the concern they have that's valid while letting them realize that the information they're looking to to validate that concern is false? Okay, so how do you explain to people without a science background what they're receiving is accurate and what should they be looking for in terms of falsehoods? Um, you know, how do we protect ourselves a little bit if we don't have the in-depth knowledge that people within your industry have? And there are a bunch of disinformer tactics, we call them, that people use to mislead. A really good red flag to look out for is how do you feel when this person is sharing information? If you constantly feel afraid and angry and very strong, intense emotions, that is a very good warning sign that maybe you should take a step back. Maybe this person is purposefully trying to use and manipulate with emotions to sidestep some science. That's a really common disinformer tactic that we see right now. And so I would I would use that. Are they being balanced? Are they sharing bad information with context and some optimism? Or are they really just riling up a certain emotional reaction? For me, that's one of the strongest red flags, especially on social media, where we know algorithms kind of prioritize polarizing content. So that's a really good guiding principle. The other thing is, is this a person who is only ever giving you their personal opinion, even as a professional? one person's opinion is not how science operates. It operates on the consensus and reproducible things. So you should be looking for people who are not just saying, I think this, I know this, but they're saying, based on these many studies and these experts, 
I agree that this makes sense. Really pointing to that principle of science of consensus. I can't imagine the burden that comes with having to do the research that you're doing and actually create the content. You're opening your world up. And recently you've opened your own personal experience up a little bit with the way that you've lived your life and you did it for the vaccine as well. Is there anything that you want to share about that experience and why you felt it was important to actually share that with your followers? So I am someone who has spent most of the last year talking about vaccine science and sharing a lot about the importance of vaccines. And yet I'm also someone who has really extreme um, or really intense needle anxiety. I have no issues with vaccines. In fact, I love vaccines, but the process of getting vaccinated and being around needles is, is really anxiety provoking for me. And I'm not alone in that, but it's something I've never discussed publicly. It's something that this time last year, I was feeling really ashamed about because I knew it was coming. And I frankly wasn't sure that I'd even be able to get vaccinated because as much as I wanted to, it's just something that's so hard for me. And I was already so burnt out. I didn't know if I had the bandwidth to even get there. And a lot of people close to me were also wondering if I'd be able to do it. So that was a big burden I was carrying kind of secretly. I realized, though, that this is something really important. There are estimates that up to like 10 to 15 percent, if not more, of adults may also experience this uh, to some degree. And I realized it was important for me to let people know that it's okay if you're anxious about this. There are still accommodations available, and we can also support one another as a community. And the response from that gave me so much hope in such a dark time. The other important side, though, was that my anxiety stems from being dismissed and being treated poorly in healthcare settings. I had a really a lot of negative interactions with healthcare workers when I was younger, and they have made me uncomfortable in a lot of healthcare settings, which again is is perhaps ironic for someone in my line of work, but I wanted people to know that there are very valid critiques of our healthcare systems, and you may have valid reasons to not fully trust healthcare institutions as a whole. We can be a little gray and have nuance in our world that that can be true, and I share that experience, and at the same time, we can still have trust in this healthcare tool. What was the public's response to you sharing such a personal experience? You mentioned earlier that content creation allows for a more personal approach to communicating the facts, but what feedback have people given you about sharing that experience and the way you approach education in general? I was really nervous to talk about my needle anxiety. It's something, if it hasn't happened to you or someone you know, might seem really insignificant or not that big a deal. Um, I've had it dismissed by many people. I was really, really happy and grateful that when I shared my experience, thousands, thousands of messages from people with a shared experience, people who were feeling ashamed as well because they had this and they felt really empowered by having me share what coping mechanisms worked, what accommodations were available. They were now hopeful that maybe they could figure out a way to get vaccinated too. And I lost track of how many people followed up within weeks, months, and even now, a long time has passed since I first posted about it. People still message at least once a week to tell me that 
they finally were able to get vaccinated. It was hard, but they did it. And one person told me she played my video that I shared while she was waiting for her vaccination appointment. And when she was kind of freaking out, she just watched it again because it was comforting, which I kind of teared up when I saw that. And also was like, really? My anxious face was comforting. <laughs> that's that's so sweet. Um there were a, a ton of healthcare workers too who reached out to say, "Hey, I'm I'm a vaccinator. I'm go, um, I'm going to keep in mind now and picture you and what you shared about what it took to get to the appointment. Next time someone comes in, they they asked me what are other things I could do to help people like you, and so I was able to connect them to resources. And then people who were like, "I had no idea this was this big a deal. Thanks because now I know how to support my friend better." And now they felt more empowered. So that was um, an overwhelming but positive experience and just goes to show how when we connect and when we're vulnerable, it really makes a difference. Speaking of empowerment, there's nothing more empowering than having your colleagues or people within your field uh, appreciate the work that you do. What feedback have you received from other science experts and how do you think science views the idea of content creation in its current state? Over the years that I've been communicating science on social media, it's, it's probably been at least five or six years now that I've been using Instagram and other platforms. Um, the responses I've gotten from colleagues have definitely changed. In the early days, I got a lot of negative feedback, actually. A lot of people who told me that it was a shame that I was leaving science, quote unquote, uh, because I was no longer doing research myself, but communicating research. Um, a lot of people wrongfully said that that was a disappointment. Uh, I disagree. I had others who said that my approach and style was, they just didn't like it, I guess, but they critiqued it. I actually had an ad hominem attack about me and how I was using Instagram published in one of the top scientific journals called Science. It was about me. It named me specifically. And it said that basically I was communicating science in too girly a way. I don't even know. So I've gotten lots of, of negative feedback over the years, even during the pandemic in the early days. An expert who had agreed to come and do an Instagram live and then said they no longer wanted to after looking at my profile because I'm too bubbly and that didn't confer the seriousness of the situation, which was shocking to me because I think I'm pretty balanced. So I will say there have been a lot of uh, downsides. Every creator has probably experienced this at some point. I think now I'm comfortable enough with it and, and it doesn't really bother me anymore. And I've seen the value and that's really helped to validate that my unique career path from PhD to social media is making a difference. To be able to connect with thousands of people, reach millions with an important message about science in ways that has never really been done before until creators, not just me, but others have taken to platforms that it's important. And I'm increasingly seeing colleagues in the scientific community, not only be appreciative, but value it and also bring their own voice and do an amazing job. And I'm really, really grateful to see that. Sounds like a changing of the tide. In your walrus talks, you spoke about the need for greater sustainability for content creators. How do you see your role evolving and how is the internet a part of that? Yeah, thank you. I think something I should clarify is while I spend definitely full-time hours content creating, vast, vast majority, probably 98% of it is unpaid and on a volunteer basis. And so I do have other things that I do that support me so that I can be a content creator. And that's what I was referring to is 
entirely unsustainable. It doesn't lead to the best content. It doesn't lead to a good personal experience. And I think what we need to see in Canada is a similar way that we support journalism and we need to support journalism even more. I think we also need to add different types of communicators and content creators to that. I don't really know exactly how that happens or who that needs to come from. But even during the pandemic, when there were so many grants for scientists doing outreach, I wasn't eligible for a lot of them, which to me is absurd because I can reach a lot of people. There needs to be a mentality shift in what type of communication we value. And I think content creators are usually thought to be low quality or like they don't share good information or that their work is not as necessary or vital or high quality. And and that's absolutely not true. So I'd like to see a shift in that perception of content creators going forward. As we've discussed, science content creators have reached new and diverse audiences online, likely to a greater extent than they would have through mainstream or traditional sources. What does the future of social media science literacy look like? This is an excellent question. What makes me so excited about the increased interest in learning about science through social media and the increased interest from scientists in communicating their work and their expertise through social media is that it's a way to remove a lot of the gatekeeping that has traditionally been there for who can be on a science TV show and who's looked to as an expert in our society. There's a lot of gatekeeping that I continue to face and continue to receive comments about. On social media, I can decide myself to go and share a message in a way that resonates with me and with people I'm trying to reach. And I think the more of that that we can have, the more we can really dig into the parts of science that are are the hardest to reconcile and the things that push people away the most. For example, we're often told that science should be apolitical. That's just impossible. Science is funded publicly. It's influenced by people who are influenced by politics. It should be nonpartisan, but as with anything, it is political. And I think people really stray away from that. Traditionally, they have, and in academic institutions, they often do. And I've seen all these science creators coming in and saying, no, we're going to acknowledge the social impacts. There are huge social impacts, and the social inequities really drive the negative experiences. And I think those of us who are attracted to talking on social media or, or drawn towards it, sorry, I think it's because we want to bring together the social side with the science as they should be and talk about them with that bigger lens and that more personal lens in a way that on other platforms you can't. So for me, the future of science creation on social media has representation that we've never seen before, has nuanced conversations that haven't been given big airtime before, and pulls in a lot more audiences and people for whom traditional science communication has never really been created for. Samantha, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Let's Talk About the Internet. It's been a wonderful conversation, and thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thanks so much, Mohit, for the great questions on a challenging but fascinating topic. Dr. Samantha Yamin is a neuroscientist, digital media producer, and science communicator. You can find her on Twitter and Facebook at HeyScienceSam and on Instagram and TikTok at Science.Sam. Thank you for listening to Episode 4 of Let's Talk About the Internet, a podcast for Meta, produced by The Walrus Lab. 
I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Thank you to our producers, Nikki Manfredi and Jason Herterich, and our audio editor, Michael Allen, who helped put together this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and share it with a friend. We'll be releasing a new episode in two weeks.